Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown, the website democracyatwork.info or rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Dr. Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So I caught this article in the Washington Post, Economic Growth is Slowing All Around the World by David Lynch. And two broad questions about this. The first, what actually is happening with our economy and the world economy right now? And the second, why does capitalism have these cycles? I I was reading an article some weeks ago about Australia and how in the last 30 years, Australia has not had a significant recession because the government has set aside hundreds of billions of tax dollars during good times. And when the economy slows down, they do the Australian version of the German Kurzarbeit that you remember from 2009, where they paid factory workers not to work so that they still had a paycheck and they would continue to stimulate the economy or keep the economy rolling. And it seems like these are kind of stabilizing systems for capitalism. But are they solving the problem? And for that matter, by our Fed constantly going through these yo-yos of jacking interest rates up to 5 or 6%, and then a recession happens and dropping it down to zero, and Europe still has negative re- interest rates, are we creating our own cycles or exacerbating them or making them worse? Or is this all just trying to fix what's actually broken that's intrinsic to capitalism itself? Sorry for a whole word salad there. but No, no, those are the big questions. And, of course, they come out all intertwined with one another because that's really the way the world works. Let's go from the basic to the less basic. The most basic thing is that capitalism over the 300 years roughly that we've had it as the dominant system in most of the world, wherever it settles, no matter what the continent or when the time, it produces cycles. It is a highly unstable system and it always has been. The history shows us that every four to seven years, on balance, we have something that we can call a downturn, a recession. If it lasts a long time and cuts deeply, then we graduate the term to call it a depression. The big horrible one in the 1930s, the second worst one, the one since 2008 that we're still in. The system has tried in every way for its entire history to get this instability under control. And to be blunt, it has failed. It has not been able to do it. After the really horrible one in the 1930s, we had a whole new economics, Keynesian economics, named after the British economist, that developed a whole strategy for what the government should do and could do. And by the way, that is what the Australian government that you mentioned has been doing, saving up money in the good times to be able to unload it, to try to stabilize the economy in its downturns. But nothing has worked. After the 1930s, we were told that modern regulations and all the rest would make sure this never happened again. And here we are uh, many years later, and it has happened again. So, yes, capitalism is a highly unstable system. Everything we have tried to prevent these recurring cycles has failed. 
and therefore all of us live in a system that confronts us repeatedly across our lifetimes with downturns that can either throw us out of work or do that to a member of our family or decimate our community's tax base, etc., etc. We all know uh, what that's been about. If I may interrupt, has this been exacerbated by the interconnectedness, you know, this whole neoliberal free trade, let's all kumbaya, the whole world thing. And so now, rather than having individual countries go into recessions or depressions, we have the entire planet doing this? Yes, there's a whole body that's not like a Kondraki wave. It's an active debate in economics where people have felt, as you're suggesting, that at least in the past, when capitalism had a downturn in Europe, or say even in Britain, it might not happen the same time in Italy, so that in a sense one country could offset the downturn in another. But the more you globalize, the more you interpenetrate one economy with another as companies in one invest in the other, and we trade with each other more and more, which has been the story for the last century. Yes, you get what's called coincidental business cycles, and instead of them offsetting one another, each of them makes the other one worse. For example, Europe is having a very hard time, and that negatively affects the United States. China has been slowing down over the last several years, and that definitely affects the economies of many of the third world countries that were shipping their mining and raw materials to China because it has such a rapid economic growth. So yes, the globalization takes away a balancing that you can find existed before. What that, of course, means is if you have a unified global capitalism subject to terrifying economic downturns, what you need is more coordination to deal with it. Instead, what we're getting now is Trump's nationalism. You could see in this morning's headline as the Japanese decide to resume whaling because they're not going to be held back by international agreements now that the United States has withdrawn from the Paris climate agreements, etc., etc. Everybody going their own way politically on top of a coordinated global economy is really a recipe for very, very dangerous things. And the economies around the world are slowing. That's part of why the stock market in the United States is so crazy these days because the anxiety that this could spin out of control with a fresh memory of how bad it was back in 2008 would make any reasonable investor extremely skittish and wondering what new shock, what new presidential tweet or global hotspot is going to, you know, spook this entire situation and give us yet another downturn before we've really emerged from the last one. So is part of the solution for the for the countries of the world to, as Germany and Australia have done, basically repudiate neoliberalism and embrace Keynesianism? Or I realize you're generally calling for a much more radical change, you know, challenging capitalism itself. How realistic is that? I mean, what what are the steps that we could be pursuing? Up until recently, I think the consensus among the leaderships of most major capitalist countries, Europe, Japan, the United States, and more or less the state capitalisms in India, China, and so on, they were focused on trying to do just what you said, a kind of coordinated, global, Keynesian interventionism with some disagreements about the exact timing and the exact size. But that coordination approach relies on everybody thinking that they can do better as part of a team effort than they can on their own. And Mr. Trump and the Republicans, probably for domestic political reasons more than anything else, have decided to blow all that up. And if you're the biggest player in a coordinated team and you decide to go your own way, you're basically signaling to the others that an attempt to go to survive on a coordination basis is doomed because the biggest player on your team 
isn't having any of it. And you can see that even inside these other countries, there's more and more of this go-it-yourself. The British want to leave Europe, and on and on. The Italians now basically doing it. The French beginning to toy with it because their effort to be a team player has landed Mr. Macron in ever greater difficulty. So I think you're seeing in a way, the worst possible dysfunction of global capitalism. It needs coordination, but it doesn't believe in it. It's going to go on its own. That isn't going to work at all in a globalized economy. And you're just looking for scapegoats, which is why you have this bizarre focus on immigrants as if they were the problem when they are the least of the difficulties. It is a sign of a system in a very extreme moment of dysfunction And it's not clear whether and how it can get out of it. I wish I didn't have to say such things, you know, in the holiday season, but now it would be make-believe. Is the USS Titanic here, have we hit the iceberg and it's inevitable at this point, or are we still looking for the iceberg on the horizon and trying to avoid it? I don't believe in inevitability. I never did. So, no, I don't think it's inevitable. But I think we are in a very, very dangerous place with a captain of the ship who's facing in the wrong direction and therefore unlikely to figure out how to get us out of it. And what will then save us? That's anybody's guess. So by looking in the wrong direction, you mean as in, you know, he's looking to solutions from the past that sometimes work and sometimes... He's looking for scapegoats, immigrants foreigners, trading partners, anything other than the system itself being broken. He can't face that, and he certainly can't face any culpability for himself. So we are caught up in a person finding scapegoats instead of finding solutions. And at a time of great difficulty, that's a luxury no society can afford. So it seems like a rational starting point anyway would be to abandon Reaganomics and go back to Keynesian economics at a certain level here in the United States. But what's the first step that would be toward a much larger solution in the 30 seconds we have left? For me, it would be recognizing that this economy is above all a private capitalist economy, proudly so on the part of all the conservatives. That means that the basic contours of the economy come out of the decisions made by the enterprises that produce goods and services. A tiny minority, major shareholders and boards of directors, make those decisions and do it for the private profit of their companies. That produces social dysfunction. We need to democratize the enterprise, make them run by the customers and workers, make them go. That's the majority. That's the only way out I can see. The workers' co-ops, basically. That's it. Worker-owned co-ops. Brilliant. Professor Richard Wolf, democracywork.info, rdwolf.com, Prof Wolf, the Twitter handle. Professor Wolf, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom, and have a happy new year. Thank you. Happy new year to you too, sir. And we'll talk to you next week. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that'll really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady's been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping in time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. Tom Harmon here with you. A couple things I wanted to share with you. First, yesterday I was walking into work and there's a little rope, you know, blocking uh, entrance to the driveway to our building. And I attempted to step over it and caught it with the toe of my shoe as I was walking fairly quickly and fell face first on the parking lot and, you know, caught myself with my hands, which just really injured my right hand. It's fine now, but, you know, yesterday it was hurting so badly. And uh, I couldn't type. I couldn't write. So instead of doing my writing yesterday afternoon, I sat and I watched uh, cable news for three hours. And and 
What was interesting to me, and I'm wondering, I would really like to turn this into a meme and get this out there. I kept waiting for an issue to come up. You know, should we be in Syria or should we not be in Syria? Should we be in Afghanistan or should we not be in Afghanistan? Should drug companies be able to jack up the prices they are or should we regulate drug companies? Should the Internet uh, be uh, neutral or should the big Internet companies be able to rip us off? How should we change our immigration policy? I mean, literally, I was waiting for one issue. Should we have Medicare for all or not? I watched probably out of that three hours, at least an hour of it was people speculating about Democrats running for president. And I kept waiting for them to say, well, you know, this guy supports Medicare for all. This guy doesn't. Or this woman, you know, guy I'm using generically, but, uh, or, you know, this, this candidate or the potential candidate thinks that we should, you know, raise taxes on the rich and this candidate doesn't. I kept waiting to hear that. Any one issue. Please, guys. I watched two different cable television networks and for three hours, please, one issue. Let's just have a conversation. You've got these Republicans on. You've got, you know, Bill Kristol or Rick Santorum or what? You've got these, these right-wing Republicans. Well, hell, you've got Republicans running your shows, you know, Joe Scarborough and Nicole Wallace. I'm, you know, and, and th- these Republicans are on, and I'm like, okay, let's talk about some of these Republican issues. Should pri- Social Security be privatized? Should Medicare be privatized? Should, should Medicaid You know, should the states be forced to expand Medicaid? Should we attempt to overturn the Supreme Court decision? There was a discussion at one point about how much elections cost. Well, should we do something about that? By the way, how much did the billionaires put in and who were the billionaires? No, no discussion of any of this. It was all horse race. In fact, there was a lengthy discussion about who might be the potential that I watched on cable news yesterday. It was a lengthy discussion about who might be the Democratic candidate. And I kept waiting for them to say, well, you know, uh, Joe Biden might be hurt by, you know, proposing bankruptcy reform that screwed students. Uh, On the other hand, Joe Biden did this cool thing with, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have one right off the top of my head, but I know that there's lots of them out there. That's the one particular sin he has that I think will come back to haunt him. But, you know, or, you know, Beto O'Rourke did this or didn't do that or burning this or I mean I just didn't hear any of this and I kept waiting I I was like in fact I was yelling at the TV what about the issues and I was hearing that well Beto is very likable well Joe Biden has a lot of experience these are meaningless there was this one guy who was on and he says well you have to remember the presidential elections are always reactive so the election of, of Jimmy Carter was a pushback against uh, Nixon. And the election of Bill Clinton was a pushback against George Herbert Walker Bush. The election of Barack Obama was pushback against George W. Bush. And the election of Donald Trump was a pushback against Barack Obama. Well, okay, if you think that's true, what were the issues they were pushing back on? No discussion. Not a word. Literally not a word. It just, it just blew my mind. I'm thinking of running a contest or something. If you can catch a commentator on CNN or MSNBC actually talking about it. And now, oddly enough, and I can't get Fox at home. I, you know, I, don't, I have a subscription to you know, one of these streaming services for the news, but it doesn't include Fox. But I occasionally watch Fox clips. And I've debated people on Fox, and Fox actually talks about issues. Now, they spin things horribly. And they give a very, very one-sided view of the issues, but they actually talk about issues. Occasionally. But the other networks, no. It's completely issue-free. And I'm just watching this with my, you know, my jaw hanging down going, really? This is what passes for news? This is called cable news? Even the opinion shows don't talk about issues. They talk about personalities. I've been noticing this for years, and I've been ranting about it for years. But, for example, here, this is uh, from isidewith.com. Somebody tweeted this to me this morning. 2018 political quiz. Should the president be able to authorize military force against al-Qaeda without congressional approval? Should we be in foreign countries? Which countries? What's your stance on abortion? Should the government continue to fund Planned Parenthood? How do you feel about same-sex marriage? Should the government increase environmental regulations to prevent climate change? Should we ban disposable plastics that are not biodegradable? Should we make cuts to public spending in order to reduce the national debt? Yesterday, I was telling you, this is going to be the big issue. After the Democrats take the House, the Republicans are going to start screaming about how big the national debt is. 
And oh, you Democrats, don't you dare do something like, you know, Medicare for all, because we've got this huge national debt and we got to freak out about it. National debt brought to you by Ronald Reagan, George Herbert Walker Bush, George W. Bush and Donald Trump. Should the U.S. raise taxes on the rich? You'll never hear a discussion about that among the millionaires who are on cable television. And yeah, they are. I mean, you know, by the time you get to one of those chairs, you're talking about a million dollars a year, at least as kind of starting pay. What about uh, full-time employees who, who need sick leave? Should internet provide, you know, should we have net neutrality? Should there be more restrictions on owning guns? Should health insurers be able to deny people with pre-existing conditions? Do you support raising, increasing taxes to, to reduce interest rates for student loans? Any of these issues, one of them. How about charter schools? You know, how about public schools? Should the U.S. remain in the United Nations? Should every 18-year-old be forced to do public service in exchange for that you know, four years of college? Should we be accepting refugees from Syria? Should police be required to wear body cam? These are some of the weakest issues, by the way, not the really inflammatory issues. I didn't hear any of it. Am I missing something here? Are you hearing issues on, on, on cable television, on cable news? It is baffling to me. John in San Francisco, listening to Real Talk 910. Hey, John, what's up? Good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to make a couple of comments about uh, media and the passing of Ed Schultz, Alan Combs, and Ray Taliaferro this mm -hmm. year. I used to listen to them. You're, you're the longest-lasting person on radio that I've listened to, and I've been listening to radio since I was a wee one in the 60s. So anyway, I, I miss both Ed Schultz and Alan Combs, and I really miss Ray Taliaferro because he, he got four hours overnight for decades here in the Bay Area. Yeah, I never knew Ray, but Ed and Alan were both friends of mine. It's, it is such a shame that uh, they're no longer with us because they were both very, very talented guys. And I never liked Alan when he was on uh, with Hannity, but I loved his radio show, and I loved him calling, you know, the dog whistlers, the dog whistlers every single time. I love that. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to point out that I listen to CBSN on a live stream, and it's a 24-hour network uh, thing that CBS puts out. And about half the day is live, and the other half is pre-recorded from the live broadcast, mm -hmm. mostly. They even run some uh, Sunday night stuff. I know you've complained that there's nothing on Sunday live, but right. Elaine Keanu does at least an hour on Sunday afternoon. This is this is uh, radio or audio or something like that. Audio over the internet. This is not video. This is not television. It is video. It's all video. Oh, yeah, it is. It's the CBS News 24 hours essentially, huh. and uh, it's hosted by really good people. Do they and, actually um, talk about news, John? Yeah. Absolutely. It's I mean, I've been going to BBC and France 24 when I get when I finally get, you know, just insanely fed up with CNN and MSNBC not being willing to talk about issues. And, you know, I pop over to those networks, but uh, huh, I'll have to look for CBSN. Okay, too, but, but th at least CBSN has a little more authenticity and factually based information than... Yeah. I, I will have to check it out. And, uh, you know, assuming that you're not an employee for CBS. No, no. Yeah. absolutely never. Yeah, okay. John, thanks um, a lot for the call. I'll have to check that out. I appreciate it. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's up? Nazarovia, comrade, is another glorious Dan Trumpistan. There you go. Hey, listen, I heard about your uh, woes with uh, the writing, and I don't know if you knew that, uh, like in uh, the Google Chrome browser, you have the option for voice typing. Are you familiar oh, with that at all? I am, and, and in fact, some years ago, I had, I had injured my hand also, and this is when we lived in D.C., and I figured out how to make the, uh, I don't know if it's called Siri or whatever, but Apple's got a pretty good dictation interface. I just really was pleased to take a whole day off yesterday <laughs> from writing, because I, I, you know, I've written two books in the last 10 months, and edited did a third one and it's just been insane i haven't had a day off in so long that i just you know i i, I was injured but uh, you know and i and i thought it probably not a good idea to type so i just took the day off and thought okay i'll play you know cable tv bum and see what i learn boy was i shocked you're an inspiration for writers tom yesterday i submitted my very first article to op-ed news and i have you to thank for it and now hopefully i consider myself a uh, fellow writer like yourself oh that's great op-ed news is run by my old friend rob call 
Uh, I've known Rob for decades, and he's just one of the greatest people on earth. And he runs this incredible website, opednews.com, that, um, you know, it's kind of the little engine that could. And, the, and they, one of the things that they do a lot is feature first-time writers or new writers uh, who, who can do a good job of writing an op-ed. I mean, there is an editorial filter there, but you don't have to be a, a big name or previously published in order to get on. And it's a great starting point for people. Well, keep your eyes open for uh, my article, uh, 2018, the year in review. God help us. Okay. Chaz, I'll look for it. <laughs> Thanks a lot for the call, Thanks. and have a great day. Uh, Antoinette, Washington. Hey, Antoinette, what's up? Did you ever hear, I'm sure you must know about that book called The Dumbing Down of America? Yeah. But, this was a few years how, back, wasn't it? Yeah, but the thing is that some of the things that they said in that book just blew my mind. That They, they had, um, they said that the when the education was system, public education was started in this country back in the 18-something... 1880s. It was 1880. It was designed by people at Harvard and some other big university, and the whole concept of how they designed education from the very beginning was to keep people dumbed down, not, not well-educated, not using their own imagination or initiative yeah. uh, just keep them passive I, I wrote a book about this or, or at least about a third of the book is about this it's called Tom Harmon's Complete Guide to ADHD it should have had a completely different title and I go into Horace Mann Horace Mann is considered the father of modern public education in the United States he went over in the 1880s he went over to Germany and got a payhad day a PhD uh, which you could get for $50 in six months and came back to the United States as an educational expert the, the public education had really started in the late 1700s in Germany and Austria. In fact, it was uh, uh, Maria Theresa, who was the empress or whatever the title was, you know, the, 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 the head of Austria at the time. And they called them Spinnenschulen because the kids would spend uh, half the day spinning cloth and the other half the day learning. And uh, But yeah. you're absolutely right. Horace Mann said that the whole purpose of public education was to produce good soldiers for the army and good workers for factories. And to... And go ahead. Good buyers and good consumers. Yeah, I don't recall Horace Mann ever saying that, but certainly that, uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Antoinette, thank you for the call. Yeah, our public education system needs some work. Certainly doesn't need Republicans. Tom Harmon here with you. Apropos of my rant, somebody tweeted to me, Matthew Dowd's tweet, where he said, media take. Uh, as we leave 2018 behind and are about to head into 2019, my hope is that many in the news media stop treating politics like a game. Let's stop with the who is scoring points coverage and focus on what really matters and give the coverage more meaning and purpose. Amen. Thanks to Sharon M. for retweeting that to me, uh, which I'm going to like live on the air here right now. And Nicholas in San Cristobal, Mexico. Hey, Nicholas, what's up? Mr. Hartman, Happy New Year to you, Louise, and the whole crew. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too, May, Nicholas. May, 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 May 2019 be a significantly better year for the world than 18 has been. Amen. And um, thanks for hanging out in our YouTube chat room and, and playing the role you do. I appreciate it. Uh, catching a lot of grief lately, but that's all right. Um, apropos your rant, which is terrific, uh, you're at your best, you know, when you get really angry about stuff. It's great. But... Uh, as an old guy, I've been watching exactly what you were ranting about, the mainstream media, why it does not actually um, report more actual news. I think it's not completely accidental. They owe so much, so many obligations to so many advertisers in so many different fields that if, if they don't keep as many balls in the air going at once, some of them will land, and the public will get their hands on them long enough to actually begin to make decisions. In other words, Nicholas, are you suggesting that if, uh, if, the, if the big cable networks were to do a piece on how uh, the drug companies are ripping us off, that they might lose the billions of dollars, hundreds of millions, presumably, in, in certainly tens of millions, in advertising that they get from the pharmaceutical industry, that if they do a piece on how you know, Boeing has put its, uh, you know, one of its 31-year uh, employees in charge of the Pentagon, that we might not see any more ads for Boeing or uh, McDonnell Douglas, that, that if, I mean, that if, uh, the, if uh, we were to start reporting on how the banksters are ripping us off, that there wouldn't be any more ads from is that what you're saying, Nicholas? Oh, my God. Say it ain't so. Say it ain't so, please. Yeah, it can't yeah, be that right. bad. Yeah. Look, yes, it is. You know it. I know it. We're old enough to have watched it all uh, fall apart. 
and slid down this razor blade of advertising. And, uh, and here we are. The, the, you know, but I, you, you can still take on your advertisers. I mean, I, you know, we had well, we had uh, last week or the week before, and I don't. They may still be advertising. Uh, you know, we had a a, a, a steak company. I, you know, I don't eat meat. I, you know, and I and I go on the air and I say you shouldn't eat meat. It's it's bad for the environment. I mean, you know, but you know. They wanted to advertise on the show. Uh, you know, in the future, I, I, you know, we may redecide that. But this is this is like, you know, you can still be honest with people, regardless of who's advertising on your show, or at least you I would think be. so. You can be, but don't confuse yourself with the network executives who are making the millions of dollars. It's far more important to them those millions of dollars than telling the public the truth. The last thing they want, and I know it sounds terribly cynical, but that's what has happened to me during my lifetime since Berkeley. They don't want us, the public, they don't want the public understanding the full truth of how badly they've been ripped off. Nader has talked about it for how long? Forever. You know, all the smart people have. Chomsky has. Um, I was just listening to, believe it or not, I, Morris Berman had escaped me my entire life, much to my chagrin. Um, Morris Berman's been talking about it his whole life. Um, do you, by the way, a quick aside here. Do you know someone named Christine Mattis? M a t t i s with a K K r i s t i n e Christine Mattis. I Absolutely don't. brilliant social hyphen environmentalist justice huh. seeker. Incredible on YouTube. Only a couple. Yeah. Brilliant PhD. She has found some new dots that should be connected to the whole environmental thing. Mm. That wasn't where we were going, though, with this. Yeah, I, I am that cynical, and I do think they do not want the public to understand how poorly they've been, how badly they've been ripped off. Yeah, I, the last I, thing they can absolutely, I absolutely agree, Nicholas. I absolutely agree. And, 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 and it, it's not just a shame. It's a crime against democracy. I mean, you know, Jefferson said famously, if you, if you want to have a, a, an uneducated public and a functioning republic, you're asking for something that never existed and never will. I'm, I'm badly paraphrasing, but Nicholas, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. And, and yeah, Sean forwarded me this, this uh, article from Muckrack. Is that, that's the source? This is uh, Patrick Radden Keefe's piece in The New Yorker about Mark Burnett. With The Apprentice, the TV producer mythologized Trump, then a floundering D-lister, D, like as an ABC list. Trump, in 2005, when, when Mark Burnett thought, hey, let's make him the star of his own TV show, basically Trump was viewed by America as a punchline. He was, at that point, you know, bankrupt. No bank would loan to him. His entire empire was teetering. And his empire, keep in mind, you know, the Trump organization is just a little company with a dozen or, or thereabouts employees. And that's all it's ever been. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't, you know, run some giant empire. He's got this little marketing company, essentially. And this paved his way to the presidency. Now, it turns out Burnett, who is British, was living and working in the United States without a green card. He was an illegal immigrant, to use the phrase the Republicans like. And he's the guy who made Donald Trump famous to the rest of the country by putting him on NBC for 10 or 11 years. So uh, Spider Canyon Reboot tweets, two rich white immigrants, Murdoch and Burnett, have done a measurable damage to this country, much more damage than any negative combined impacts of illegal immigrants from Latin America. Amen. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani came out yesterday and basically said, you know, hey, if Trump colluded with Russia, so what? That's not against the law. If Trump tried to block to obstruct justice, so what? That's not against the law. If Trump was in possession of hacked emails and was using them for political purposes, so what? That's not against the law. Well, a lot of those things actually are against the law. Dominic Jackson over on Raw Story speculating, well, this actually quoting Jeffrey Tubin on CNN, maybe Rudy is preparing the ground for Trump's treason to be exposed and, and getting his supporters ready. Here's your talking point when this come out. Oh, yeah, well, you know, so this would be like during the Nixon era. Yeah, so he tried to break into the, uh, to the Democratic headquarters to find out if they knew that he committed treason in the 68 election which is actually one of the things that the Watergate burglars were looking for. Yes, Nixon you know, ordered them to break into Watergate to see if the Democrats had the evidence on Nixon's treason in 68, if LBJ had told them. And yeah, he tried to cover that up. But, you know, that's not against the law, is it? Come on. Come on. I mean, this, you know, how is this different? Another amazing story. The U.S. Office of Personnel Management tweeted out yesterday to government workers. You've got 800,000 government employees now who are either furloughed or working without pay. The, many of them, contractors or the employees of contractors, get no pay whatsoever. And their tweet was bizarre. They tweeted a, a proposed letter 
that you would send to your landlord. As we discussed, I am a federal employee who has recently been furloughed due to a lack of funding of my agency. Because of this, my income has been severely cut and I am unable to pay the entire cost of my monthly payments along with other expenses. And it goes on to say, you know, maybe I could do some carpentry for you. I mean, are we going to go back to the 19th century and before when there was absolutely no protection for people and landlords routinely not only traded things like doing carpentry work, but even traded things like sex for people in exchange for rent? I mean, is this really where the Trump administration wants to take us? Meanwhile, the Washington Post points out Trump's arguments about the wall, they are all lies, all lies lies. He says Democrats want an open border on the South. No, that's a lie. He says illegal immigration is a crisis in the United States. No, actually, since 2009, over the last 10 years, roughly, the number of people in this country without documentation has actually declined. And by the way, the majority of the people in this country, illegally, who, who are here without documentation, are not here from Mexico. And the majority of them came into this country just last year, okay, last year, 170,000 successful illegal border crossings in the South. That's the estimate from the Department of Homeland Security, 170,000. The majority of those are people who actually then went to turn themselves in and ask for asylum. Compare that with 630,000 people from all over the world who simply came in on a tourist visa or a student visa or a work visa and decided to stay. They came in to work for one of the Trump properties that exclusively hire foreigners or largely hire foreigners, and after their visa expired, they said, yeah, I'll stick around. Drugs. Trump says they're bringing drugs into the country. No, according to the Homeland Security. Most drugs enter the U.S. through the border uh, with Mexico come smuggled in vehicles or on the bodies of people crossing in the United States. He says human trafficking. Uh, okay, from 2001 to today, that's what, almost 18 years, the number of people who were caught in human trafficking during that entire 18-year period from south of the border to here, 170 people. And most of those people, they think, were actually, you know, this was children in this case, they were actually children accompanying family friends or trying to reunite themselves, trying to unite themselves with their family that was already in the U.S. Crimes and gangs? No. 56 people in that entire period since 9-11. 56 people were associated with MS-13. Two one-hundredths of one percent of the total. And they were nailed. Terrorism? No. None. Not one single quote from the State Department. No credible information that any member of a terrorist group has traveled through Mexico to gain access to the U.S. And no evidence of disease. Lies. Trump is just nakedly lying to his supporters via Twitter, via any means he can, and the media are constantly echoing these lies. As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for, the, for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. Today we're reading about Thunderdome politics, an uncivil war taking back our democracy in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics by Greg Sargent, the Washington Post columnist. This is from uh, his chapter on voter suppression. It's page 37. Republicans and Democrats inhabit different political realities, as mentioned in a previous chapter. But there are certain facts about our politics that are just objectively true. One of them is this. Generally speaking, efforts to make it harder to vote are almost always pushed by Republicans. You cannot understand what is happening in American politics right now without recognizing this stark and very fundamental difference between the two major political parties. During this decade, procedural hurdles were put into place in around 20 states that in some manner or other have made it harder to vote or to register to vote 
or have undone previous efforts to make voting or registering easier or have otherwise threatened serious disenfranchisement. Most of them were the creation of Republican lawmakers and officials. The difference in the two parties' national platforms for 2016 tells the story. The GOP platform champions additional hurdles that are absurdly disproportionate to the phantom abuse it alleges, while the Democratic platform champions multiple specific ways to make it easier to vote, not harder. The most common and controversial of methods used by Republicans to suppress Democratic turnout is the requirement that would-be voters present identification at the polls. The game here tends to turn on requiring forms of ID that some groups are less likely to have, making participation harder for them. Other restrictions include techniques like cutting back on early voting and making it harder to register, both of which have, in recent years, been instituted in multiple states. Republicans who have passed laws making it harder to vote have tended to claim such measures are necessary to protect against, quote, voter fraud. We'll look at this in more detail below, but for now, notes that note that most of the states that have passed such measures did so while under Republican control. As New York University political scientist Samuel Isikoff has memorably put it, the single predictor necessary to determine whether a state will impose voter access restrictions is whether Republicans control the ballot access process. Scholars trace the modern era of warfare over election rules to the intensely contested presidential election of 2000, in which a divided Supreme Court halted the recount in Florida, throwing the presidency to George W. Bush. The closeness and partisan acrimony of that contest, combined with the intense national focus on election rules that accompanied the court battle over it, helped persuade both parties to invest much more attention and energy on those rules. As a result, both the implementation of measures restricting the ballot and the legal battles over them have intensified in recent years. A brief glance at the surprising history of voter ID laws begins to tell the story of this tightening. In the 1970s, several states implemented voter ID measures, but all of them provided for ways that voters without the proper ID could cast a ballot. By 2000, there were 14 such laws, and they had been implemented by politicians in both parties. But by the mid-2000s, amid rising post-2000 acrimony, a handful of red states began implementing voter ID laws that the nonpartisan National Conference of State Legislatures described as, quote, strict, meaning that they make it easy to disqualify those who don't pass muster. After one of those laws in Indiana was challenged and then upheld in 2008 by the Supreme Court, an escalation began that gained momentum in the Obama era. From 2010 onward, the adoption of voter ID laws in general, and of strict ones in particular, accelerated. Though a handful were blocked in the courts, as of this writing, a total of 34 states have voter ID laws in effect, 24 that are deemed non-strict, and 10 that are deemed strict. The strict ones are in red states or in swing states where they were implemented by Republicans. The story is very similar if you evaluate the state's voting rules in a broader way by including not just voter ID measures, but also cutbacks to early voting and restrictions on registration. Here the trend is just as pronounced. After the 2010 elections, the Brennan Center for Justice documented a sharp rise in efforts to pass such measures in the state legislatures across the country. Not all these efforts bore fruit, but many did. By the time voting took place in Election Day 2016, some 14 states had these new restrictions in place for the first time in a presidential election. Now, as of this writing by the Brenner Center's count, some 20 states have successfully implemented either strict voting ID requirements or cutbacks to early voting or restrictions on registration or other me measures with meaningful disenfranchising effects. If you're a liberal who's frustrated by the seemingly unbreakable Republican dominance of not national politics, not to mention GOP control of most state governments across the country, then the chances are that these restrictions figure heavily into your explanation of this GOP supremacy. Indeed, social media has been absolutely saturated in recent years with variations of the lament that Republican political dominance is largely maintained through a combination of nefarious and undemocratic tactics, such as ballot restrictions that keep constituencies unfriendly to the GOP from voting, and extreme gerrymanders that have, in effect, built a fortress around the GOP's majority in the House of Representatives. Democrats frequently invoke the, the GOP's use of these tactics, often justifiably, to raise money and to galvanize turnout. This narrative contains some important truths. Some of the forms that these restrictions on voting access have taken in recent years are diabolically obvious in their efforts to keep constituencies supportive of Democrats from voting. Still others boast the distinction of being more insidiously designed and thus less obvious in their intentions. The book is Uncivil War by Greg Sargent of The Washington Post.
Matt in San Francisco. Hey, Matt, what's up? Hey, Tom. I, I guess I have sort of a contrary take on the the whole Trump thing. I'm a little concerned that the the focus and the narrative with him has kind of led us down a road that you know I think we should at least consider that this kind of serves the interests of the the deep state and the elite, possibly certainly the the anti-Russian parts that have been raised through Trump and the belief now that the Democrats are somewhat maybe the, the more aggressive party going after Russia in some ways is somewhat problematic. Also, the identity politics that's kind of arisen out of this has also kind of taken away the focus that this is making no sense to me, Matt. It's it, Donald Trump, apparently, and we will find out eventually, conspired with a foreign power. I don't care if it's Russia, China, Turkey, you know, or Jamaica. If he conspired with a foreign power to subvert the democratic process in the United States to become president, we've got a serious problem. You talk about identity politics. He is playing white racist identity politics. And that's where he started out. He started out coming down the elevator in his stunt, which was only to get himself a pay raise from NBC because Gwen Stefani was making $2 million a year more than he was. He was outraged about it. He hires a PR company. They hire a bunch of actors for 50 bucks an hour. It was a stunt. That and the first two rallies. It was just a stunt. The whole point, it's like the whole scam is just mind-boggling. I don't get your concern troll stuff here, Matt. What are you trying to say? So the basic idea, let's just try and put Trump aside for a moment and consider what the agenda of the elite in this country might be. And I think that would clearly be to... The agenda of the elite in this country, Matt, is really simple. They want to extract as much cash as they can from all the rest of us. I mean, you know, this this is at the core of the Republican Party. This is this is the DNA of the Republican Party. Ronald Reagan rolled this thing out. Jude Wininski back in the 1970s wrote it up in the Wall Street Journal. It was called the Two Santa Claus Theory. Whenever the Republicans are in office, run up as much debt as you can. Whenever the Democrats come into office, scream about the debt so that the Democrats have to shoot their own Santa Claus. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, things like that. Do away with the social safety net and transfer more and more wealth from the average person to the very, very rich. That is the Republican agenda. That is the, that's the bottom line. I mean, that, that's what it's all about. That's what's going on. Deb in Anoka, Minnesota, do you have a one minute rant, Deb? Uh, yeah, I was watching Donald Trump's comments to the troops yesterday and he was talking about getting more money from other countries and this and that to right. pay for our services. It made it sound like we're a mercenary army. It was very disturbing to hear it sort of put like that from him instead of talking to them like the wonderful group they are that protect us night and day out of the goodness of their hearts. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Deb. And there was no discussion about American values because Trump has no values other than money. And so that's what he was discussing. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I saw the same thing on TV and it was like, whoa, is this, I mean, you know, he's basically telling the troops, you're here to make us money. In fact, he even said, you know, we'll do it for some countries if they pay us well. It's incredible. Deb, you spot on. You nailed it. Thank you for the call. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M, Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch. And also, we regularly put up new rants. The one I just did is about the Supreme Court. It's based in part on my book, Unequal Protection, and based in part on a book I'm writing, I'm working on right now in the Supreme Court, and in part just, you know, what, what I know and you need to know about how the Supreme Court got as badly corrupted as it is. How did we get here, right? I mean, how did we end up with, with a bunch of crazy right-wingers on the court? And what can we do about it? There actually are ways that we can address this problem of the corruption of the Supreme Court. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Harbin. Tom Harbin here with you and BJ in Marina, California. Hey, BJ, what's on your mind today? Hey, Dr. Tom. Well, I'm a little bit of a layman as far as the terms. I don't understand what neoliberalism and neocon and what neo actually is. Okay, let me and let me let me explain it if I can. I'll give you a, a, a quick. 
quick primer here. First okay. of all, Neo is, I think, Greek for new. And so it's like the new version of, right? If you say, you know, like a neo-Nazi is the new version, the reincarnation of the Nazis. So the neo-conservatives are, you know, the, the old conservatives, the, the Barry Goldwater conservatives, well, even before Barry Goldwater, really, the William F. Buckley conservatives, they were not big on foreign intervention. They were not big on foreign wars. In fact, those conservatives in the 1930s were the ones who were opposed to our intervening with what Germany was doing in Europe and participating in World War II and took Pearl Harbor to get the conservatives to go along with war. The neoconservatives are the ones who are just in love with war. They're, they love the military industrial complex. Um, you know, the Bill Crystals of the world, the Jeb Bushes of the world, the Project for New American Century that they both were part of back in 1998 that was begging Bill Clinton to, to uh, bomb Iraq. These guys are constantly saying we need to have war with Iran. You know, Mike Pompeo saying, you know, we need to bomb wow. Iran. That's the neoconservatives. That was John McCain. The neoliberalism is actually really confusing because the word liberal in the United States means progressive. It means somebody who's accepting and, and you know, the, the famous John Kennedy quote, if, you know, if liberal means, you know, somebody who is uh, open-minded and moving forward and wants to make progress in our country, then I'm a proud liberal. That was, you know, what JFK said. But in Europe, and among classical economists, the word liberal means basically what we refer to as libertarians in the United States. In other words, government doesn't involve itself in the marketplace. Government keeps hands off. If there's predators out there in the marketplace, if there's you know big billionaires who are trying to run things, that's just fine. We're not going to mess with it. And the neo neoliberalism, the new form of that classic liberalism that we call libertarianism here, but in Europe and Australia they call it the liberal, you know, like the liberal party in Australia, for example, is the what we would call the Libertarian Party here in the United States, the neoliberals are the ones who say, well, you know, we can have a little government intervention. We can still have Social Security, but, you know, probably someday we should privatize it. We can sort of have Medicare, but we really don't want to have a national health care system. We really, you know, it's okay to have an economy, but we don't want employees, you know, labor workers to have power in the marketplace. They really don't need to have unions. And so, you know, most of the Republicans these days are neoliberals, and some of the Democrats are neoliberals. You know, the, the Democratic Party took a big neoliberal turn in 1992, but they've largely, about half the, the elected Democrats at the federal level right now have largely repudiated that. Genuine American liberalism is on the rise again. Does all that make sense, BJ? But, you know, I would say, why don't we call it neo-libertarian instead of adding neoliberal because then it sort of negates and puts us old. Yeah, your point is really well taken. The problem is that the rest of the world and the entire economics profession refers to liberalism as really what we would, what you and I would call libertarianism, and uh, you know, and so you know, we're kind of stuck with these uh, mishmash terms. BJ, thanks a lot for the call. So it was a really good one. I appreciate it. When do you want to spot that burglar? When he's casing your home, or after he's in? Ask John, whose Blink camera alerted him a burglar's trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose Blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, video clips from Blink were sent to police to help convict the crooks. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two AA batteries that last up to two years. And if you're traveling over the holidays, Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check on your pets from anywhere using the Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable, and Blink works with Alexa. Blink camera systems make great holiday gifts, and they're a brilliant way to monitor your holiday package deliveries. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. That's BlinkProtect.com holiday. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. Once again, BlinkProtect.com holiday. Blink is an Amazon company. Victoria Jones is with us right now. She is the executive director of the DC Radio Company and has been a regular on our show for years and years. Victoria Jones DC is her Twitter handle. Victoria, welcome back to the program. I think probably the biggest news internationally and stuff that you have a level of expertise with that you know, I can't even come close to is what's going on with the UK and Brexit. You know, realizing you're a reporter and US citizen now, but this is where you were born. What is your sense of what Theresa May is going through? Where might this end up? What impact will it have? I mean, we're hearing now that 
The French yellow vest movement is increasingly the one of the chances is France out of the Eurozone. They want to drop the Euro and go back to the French franc so that France can engage in deficit spending. This is the same thing that Italy wants to do, that Spain wants to do. What's going on? It's a bit of a mess. And there is a fascinating guide on the BBC, which is like a simple guide to Brexit. You know, what is Brexit? What is the EU? And some of the questions, which are great, like what happens next? One of the questions is, will the deal get through the UK Parliament? And the answer is, well, at the moment, it looks like it might not. So that's a good one. And then it's, what happens if Parliament rejects the deal? answer from the BBC, it's not very clear. Well, March isn't it March 29th that all of a sudden, basically, the UK is no longer part of the EU, that the, yes, the, the, right. northern, the, the southern border of Northern Ireland, the northern border of Ireland, presumably should be reestablished. I don't know if it needs to be the old barbed wire and wall that I saw when I was there back in the 70s or maybe the early 80s, but that seems to be one of the biggest concerns. And also then then the UK needs to immediately, or Britain needs to immediately start negotiating at least bilateral trade agreements with different countries in Europe so that they can continue to buy and sell product. Yes, and yet fascinatingly, the European Court of Justice has ruled that Britain can decide not to leave, which nobody talks about, but the court has ruled that, although, you know, Britain plans to get out on the 29th of March at 11 p.m. At the moment, what is going to happen is that Parliament comes back on 6th, 7th of January, and there is a vote scheduled about a week later that Theresa May has scheduled, probably one vote, although there is talk by her government of a series of incremental votes, Mm -hmm. which really, this is what the opposition is saying, uh, is, is to run out the clock. And it, it really could well be, but the, the theory is she has a vote, and that, and then we see what happens. And if she fails, if she does not get that vote through, and it's not at all clear that she gets it through, there are a number of options of what happens next. None of them are particularly good for her, including losing her job and possibly having to call a snap election. Now, Jeremy Corbyn, who is the Labour leader, the leader of the opposition, has today called for Parliament to be called back early from its holiday break um, and to get on with it, basically. Well, that's not going to happen. And uh, the Downing Street, a spokesperson, is calling that silly. Well, you know, Downing Street would. But it, it isn't going to happen. Nobody is going to come back early. And Jeremy Corbyn actually is not very popular with quite a lot of people right now because in an interview with The Guardian, um, he, he said that his party's position is to seek to go back to Brussels and renegotiate a better Brexit deal rather than try to overturn the result of the 2016 referendum. And a lot of people um, on his side, particularly young people, are saying, wait a second, We'd like a second vote. Yeah. That's not going to happen, though, is it? Probably not, but it is It is a possibility. It's mm. one of the multiple, multiple possibilities. It's probably not going to happen, but at this point, uh, it's not outside the realm of possibilities. And, and one um, story that I, I would like to mention, which is the uh, commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, which is the top police officer, um, Cressida Dick. She said in an interview today that a no-deal Brexit would threaten access to uh, European Union-wide criminal databases and make it harder to extradite people from abroad. See, after Brexit, the UK won't be a member of Interpol, uh, sorry, Europol and Eurojust, and won't be a member of the European Arrest Warrant Scheme um, which enables EU nations to fast-track criminals. Like Would they not be able to like renegotiate this? themselves back into those agreements, or are those exclusively for members of the, of the European Union? European Union, they're going to have to negotiate country by country. It's going to right. take time. It's a, it's a major issue. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, it, it's sort of like 
I suppose, a divorce and figuring out, you know, okay, who's responsible for the mortgage payment, who's responsible for the car payment, who's going to, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right down to pet car sports, actually. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, it's amazing stuff. And Victoria, I'm, I'm curious, as a reporter in Washington, D.C., what do you see? I, you know, I hate these kind of year end wrap up story things. Uh, they tend to be just time fillers. But but you you have a you're in the catbird seat there in Washington, D.C. You have a unique perspective. What do you see as the issues that you think going into the new year we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about? Well, I always want to say that there's the unknown unknowns of of which I do think mass shootings will be one of them mm. because that's a, that's a known unknown. Um, I, I, but I would also say that immigration is going to be one, and I would say the wall, which I believe is a separate issue. I would say that a foreign policy is major because with the possible withdrawal from Syria, I think the Middle East, which is already a powder keg, is more so. I think Facebook and all cyber issues mm. are huge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely I agree. Huge. I, I absolutely agree, and I think that that's a great analysis. There's, there's a lot coming. Victoria Jones, the managing director of the DC Radio Company LLC. Victoria Jones DC is her Twitter handle. Victoria, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. Keep up the great reporting. We look forward to future conversations. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M, Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch. And also, we regularly put up new rants. The one I just did is about the Supreme Court. It's based in part on my book, Unequal Protection, and based in part on a book I'm writing, I'm working on right now in the Supreme Court, and in part just, you know, what, what I know and you need to know about how the Supreme Court got as badly corrupted as it is. How did we get here, right? I mean, how did we end up with, with a bunch of crazy right-wingers on the court? And what can we do about it? There actually are ways that we can address this problem of the corruption of the Supreme Court. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 